summers on record this year. I'm sure you've seen pictures of previously green parks and fields, which now look dry and parched and yellow. And I wonder if you, like me, have ever felt like that in your Christian walk, spiritually dry, parched, maybe stuck in a rut. Maybe you became a Christian years ago and are struggling to enjoy God in the same way now. Or maybe you're a new Christian. You've learned some of the basics of the faith and are just wondering, how do I grow? How do I push on? Where next? Well, let me bring you to this glorious gem of a prayer from Paul, right in the middle of his letter to the Ephesians. And this prayer shows us what is, I think, a full rain cloud, a ton of fertilizer to reinvigorate Christians who are stuck in a spiritual rut, to maybe reignite your prayer life, or your enjoyment of God, to push on to spiritual maturity and a life worthy of your calling as a Christian. But let me tell you now, this is not some secret method for success or a new self-help guide. It is a prayer for nothing less than a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers. A prayer for strength from the Holy Spirit. It is a prayer that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may have our hearts and affections engaged and shaped by these truths of the faith that we maybe know in our heads and that we may go on to live a life worthy of our calling to the glory of God. Now, this is in some ways a difficult passage to divide up into nice, neat categories. It appears Paul just overflows in prayer. He bears his soul in prayer. And it's a prayer made up of just two exuberant Greek sentences. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about his feeling of inadequacy when coming to preach this prayer. He said, it is a prayer best realized rather than analyzed. I think that's helpful to remember as we go through here. This is the same man that in his uh, series on Ephesians, he preached 17 sermons on this one passage. So you can imagine how I feel approaching it now. It's certainly with fear and trembling, but trusting that God will use my feeble words as a vehicle for his own. Having said that, in order, this Sunday evening, as we maybe have our minds already set on Monday, and of the things to come, structure is going to be really helpful for us to see where we're going. So hopefully we'll see this evening, firstly, Paul's grounded introduction to prayer. It's verses 14 to 16a. Then we'll see his two great petitions for spiritual strength in verse 16b to 19. And finally, we will see his glorious doxology in verses 20 to 21. So let's look firstly at the grounded introduction in verse 14 to 16a. Paul prays, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. Let's just pause here for a minute for four quick observations on Paul's grounded introduction. I hope we'll see that this is a prayer grounded in theology. It's grounded in 
humility, grounded in the Trinity, and grounded on rich resources. Firstly, it's grounded in theology. Do you see that Paul prays, comes to pray for this reason? I think it's helpful for us to ask, well, for what reason? It's helpful for us to see that this prayer is right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. And this prayer concludes what is the more doctrinal or theological section of the book in chapters 1 to 3 and prepares the way for the more practical section in in chapters 4 to 6, which is where Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. And so I think it's helpful to see this prayer as something as a hinge or like a fulcrum that the whole book of Ephesians turns upon. So when Paul comes to pray for this reason, the reason is really the whole first section of the book, the theology or the truths about God that he has expounded already in the letter with a particular focus on chapter two from when he prayed last at the end of chapter one. Of course, we have no time to delve deeply into that now. I think it's helpful that we've been studying Colossians in the mornings. And in the book of Colossians, Paul has much of the same language, many of the same concerns. He was probably writing around the same time from his imprisonment in Rome. But if the concern of Colossians was primarily on the gospel-producing Christian maturity, as we've been learning, his burden in Ephesians is on the gospel leading to Christian unity. And so a helpful phrase of the book of Ephesians is one in Christ. What it means for Christians to be in Christ, that's a phrase he uses 30 times, and how peace with God then leads to peace with one another, particularly between Jews and Gentiles in this mixed Ephesian church. And Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, where Paul was writing to, was also a culturally mixed-up place. It was previously a Greek city. It's now the third biggest city in the Roman Empire at this time, and there were all sorts of influences, um, influences of their worship of the goddess Diana or Artemis, uh, influences, as we learn in the book of Acts, of sorcery and magic, and it was a port city, so it was influenced from all over the world, much like our own increasingly divided society today. And into this, into this society, Paul paints a picture of how the gospel produces a new society, of the church in Christ as his body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul comes to pray here for this reason. I think there's a vital lesson here in prayer. Paul's prayer is grounded in theology. Paul's prayer is grounded in what he knows of God. And his theology always leads to doxology, the praise of God. Paul's exuberant prayer here bubbles over out of a spring of his theology. It's grounded on what he knows of God. And it's always stuck in my head how the Christian rapper Shailen puts this. He says, theology without doxology is just called dead orthodoxy. And doxology without theology is idolatry. So as we come to look at this prayer, we'll see that Paul's prayer is grounded on theology. Secondly, it's grounded in humility. Do you see how he prays? I bow my knees. 
Paul prays on his knees. Now, praying on your knees was not necessarily the normative pattern of prayer for Christians or for Jews at this time. So it signifies here a deep humility before God. We're not taught anywhere that we must get on our knees physically when we pray, but at times that can be so helpful. But here we certainly see Paul's heart posture, and it's one of humility. It's interesting, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 12, you'll see, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. So yes, in Christ we come in prayer with boldness, but we must always come to the throne of grace when prayer with humility. This is the humility or the dependence or the thankfulness that the gospel produces in us as we realize more and more the depths of our sin and the holiness of God and yet his mercies that are more, his mercies that are new every morning. So Paul's prayer is grounded in humility. Thirdly, it's grounded in Trinity. Do you see who Paul prays to? He prays to the Father. That's the normative pattern of prayer for Christians, to the Father. As Jesus himself taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Steve preached on that last week, so we can't dwell on that for too long now. But do take a moment to notice as we go on through the prayer, Paul's Trinitarian pattern. He prays to the Father for strengthening from the Holy Spirit that Christ would dwell in hearts or that they would know the love of Christ. And we'll see that as we go on. And it's a beautiful example of how we should approach our triune God in prayer as we join in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Paul continues, prays to the Father from whom every family or the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. We have here a play on the Greek word for father. So father is pater, like we get paternal. And the word for family here is patria, which means sort of fatherhood or paternity. It's the families. And the idea here in this verse is that all fatherhood comes from God the Father. God the Father that Paul is praying to here is not just an analogy of God being a bit like a dad. And it's certainly not as Freud wrongly suggested us projecting our need of a father onto God. No, God is the Father who is Father in eternity. And our families here are but a glimpse, often a wonderful glimpse, into the original Father. So Paul's prayer is grounded in the Trinity. Next, we'll see that it is grounded on rich resources. Do you see Paul prays according to the riches of his glory, according to the glory of the eternal God. Paul does not pray to a stingy God, does he? Those of us with some Balamina blood know all about that. No, Paul prays to a God of overflowing abundance, according to the riches of his glory, which are ours in Christ And this language of riches is used throughout the book of Ephesians. We don't have time to look at them all. But chapter 2, 7, he prays, or he 
explains that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And in 3.8, Paul talks about preaching the immeasurable riches of Christ. See, Paul prays, and friends, we also must pray according to the vast immeasurable riches of God's glory, which are ours in Christ. Do you realize, Christian, the riches that are yours in Christ when you come to pray? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, that for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And Paul prays according to the riches of his glory. It's not a reservoir that will dry up any time soon. So we see Paul's grounded introduction, grounded in theology, humility, trinity, and on these riches. Next, will you look with me at the two great petitions for spiritual strength in verses 16b to 19. I don't mean great as just pretty good. I mean truly great, truly massive prayers for spiritual strength. We'll look at the first great request. It's through the sort of second half of verse 16 to the first half of verse 17. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you'll see first here, I hope, that Paul prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being. We should ask, well, what sort of power is this? Is this the external worldly power that the Ephesians would have seen all around them in the Roman culture of powerful rulers, of warriors? Is it, as your bulletins unfortunately say, physical strength? If you look at them, there's a mistake there. It should be spiritual strength. No, Paul paints a different picture. This is power or strength from the Holy Spirit in the inner being, in the heart in the essential being of believers. You know, it's true, isn't it, that every day all of us become more aware of that outer self wasting away. I spend my life working in the hospital trying to stop that process. But all of us get sick. All of our bodies or our outer selves wear down and waste away. Paul explains the difference between the outer self and the inner self in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this is the internal, the heart strength that Paul prays for. This is the power that enables so many faithful Christians, even in their final illness, when they're externally at their weakest, when the outer self is almost totally wasted away, and yet the inner self is often at its strongest. You may have seen that in deep assurance, in singing hymns, reciting scripture, despite the body crumbling. And this prayer for the inner self seems to be Paul's priority in prayer. It makes me question I think we should question what our priorities are in prayer. If the Scottish poet was right, and I think he was, that prayer is the soul's sincere desire, 
Our priorities in prayer in private bring to light the deepest longing of our souls. And therefore, I have found my own prayers and my own desires deeply challenged by these Sunday evenings. And also in our small group studies before that in the summer as we looked more at Paul's prayers. I found it helpful to ask myself in preparation for this, what percentage of my prayers in a given week are for myself or for others are for the outer self? And what about the inner self? What's the balance of your prayers? When you pray for your children, is it more that they would get good school results, get a good job, or that they would grow in their love and knowledge of Christ? Or praying for your parents, would they be fit and healthy or for their spiritual health? And don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for physical things. Of course we should. Paul himself in Philippians 4, 6 said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. But his priority is clearly for the inner self. His priority is to do what the Lord Jesus taught us, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6. And so Paul continues in this prayer, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And if you're grown up in church, this might seem like familiar language, but it should make us stop to pause and think. Paul is writing to and praying for the Ephesian church, for Christians. And he's just spent the majority of the letter up to this point explaining what it means to be in Christ. So why is he praying now that Christ would dwell in their hearts? Surely Christ already dwells in all Christians. It's a really good question to ask of the text. Well, the word for dwell here in the Greek is a compound word made up of to live and down. It means to settle down. You know, I've lived in a number of student homes houses, as I'm sure some of you have. Whilst I lived there, they were not really home. We couldn't paint the walls, we couldn't change things, we couldn't make it the way we wanted. But now, in comparison, Elizabeth and I are so thankful to have our own home, a place that we can make our own. We can paint the walls, we can make the changes we want, and in some ways be masters of our own little space. And we'll even get that dripping tap fixed someday. And this is what Paul is praying for. Yes, Christ already dwells in the hearts of believers by his Spirit. And he's not going anywhere. But Paul prays here that he would increasingly make these hearts his home. To settle down, to be master over their hearts. And notice with me that this requires strength from the Holy Spirit and is done through faith. Just as by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, not your own doing, a gift of God, so this increasing indwelling work is a work of God in the hearts of believers, in our inner selves. The Holy Spirit brings this about 
as we live in dependent faith on God. So prayer number one, Paul's first great request is for spiritual strength for Christ to increasingly dwell in our hearts. Next, let's go on to the second prayer, Paul's second great request. And this one is for spiritual strength to know the love of Christ. If you look at the second half of verse 17 with me, Paul starts that you being rooted and grounded in love. Paul begins the second prayer request with a reminder of identity, the identity of the Ephesians, the identity of all Christians that they are rooted and grounded in love. There's two images here, one rooted like a big tree, and the second one grounded as in foundations of a building. You know, Ephesus was a city that had regular major earthquakes, and yet you can visit Ephesus today, and many of the buildings from this time were still standing. The Ephesians knew all about firm foundation, and yet Paul here describes the firmest foundation of all. This is the foundation that he's described in chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of what? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Christians have a deep, solid, unchanging rooting and foundation on the love of God. And so the next thing we'll notice in this second prayer request is for strength to know the love of Christ is with all the saints. Do you see that? And saints here does not mean the Roman Catholic understanding of a special type of Christian. This is all Christians. Saints just means holy ones or set apart ones. It's Christians. And this is a prayer for all Christians. And the prayer request is with all the saints or together with all the saints. You see, knowing the love of Christ as Paul is praying here is not a lone ranger activity. As I said earlier, unity in the church is a particular burden of Paul's in this letter. And he's painted a picture already of Christians being built into one temple, one body of Christ. And he will go on in chapter 5 to describe the church as the bride of Christ, the one bride of Christ, not multiple brides. Brothers and sisters, it will take the whole bride of Christ together to begin to know the whole love of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I find this every week, even in this very church. You know, you speak to someone who's maybe endured great suffering and you see something of the love of Christ there. You speak to someone who maybe loves church history and theology and they tell you of something you, they've read that week and you see something of the love of Christ there. You see it in children and their understanding, people from different cultures. Do we not learn something of the love of Christ from us all as we gather in unity, as the bride of Christ worldwide together declare, I am his and he is mine? And what is it then that Paul goes on to pray? That the Ephesians would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
Is this not one of the greatest prayer requests in the whole Bible? We could just stop here and um, just spend hours in this, but we can't do that now. But again, it's another thing that makes us question. Because surely all Christians know something about the love of God. Surely all Christians have known a bit of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So why does Paul pray that we would have spiritual strength? Strengthening from the Holy Spirit to know this love. Well, Paul does not pray here that they would know about or have a superficial or mental or just logical understanding of what God's love is, but that they would know it in their hearts and enjoy it in their experience. The word translated as comprehend here means to capture to seize, to grasp, and to to wrestle down. You know, Jonathan Edwards is so often quoted with his honey analogy from his famous sermon, A Divine and Supernatural Light, and it's helpful. You know, we can know that honey is sweet with the rational mind, or we can know it with the sensing tongue. There's a difference between knowing in our heads that honey is sweet and tasting it. And this is what Paul's getting at here. He's praying that with the psalmist, the Ephesians would taste and see that they could say, my cup overflows. That they could say with Paul himself in Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Do you know that in your heart? Well, we need strength from the Holy Spirit to know this immeasurable love of Christ. Look again, do you see that it's to know the breadth and length and height and depth? This goes beyond the normal three dimensions that we usually measure things in. It's helpful to ask why. I think we can learn something from the older commentators who would have taken this to speak of the breadth of Christ's love that was wide enough to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and the the length of his love that is from everlasting to everlasting, the height of his love that lifts us up to his right hand in heaven, and the depth that reaches down to the lowest sinner. It's helpful, but I think the point Paul is making is that this love goes beyond what our rational minds can grasp. It is a love that he says himself surpasses knowledge. God's love in Christ for us goes beyond logic and rational thinking. And it certainly doesn't depend on our mental capacity, does it? Isn't it true that it's not necessarily the smartest or most intelligent Christians that have the greatest sense and enjoyment of God's love? When you speak to a believer with Down syndrome and they tell you, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is that not the most profound sense of what it means to know the love of Christ? We often sing it better, don't we? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness 
over me, underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. Or one of my favorite hymns, loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know, spirit sent from Christ above thy dust, witnessed it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine, in a love that cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. Christian, this is the love that Christ loves you with. And where do we see the supreme display of this love? On the cross of Christ. You've heard the saying, often attributed to Augustine, that the cross was a pulpit in which Christ preached his love to the world. And it's this prayer request, it's this grasping of the love of Christ by the power of the Spirit that allows Paul to say in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe Paul was anticipating what would in the future require John's rebuke of the Ephesian church in Revelation 2. Do you remember what it was? That they had abandoned the love they had at first. They had lost their first love. Great Vic, have we, have any of us lost our first love? Have you grown cold and dull in your understanding of the love of Christ? Well, we need this spiritual strength and we need unity together to know and enjoy the immeasurable love of Christ. So Paul's second great request is that Christians would have spiritual strength to truly know, to grasp the immeasurable love of Christ. And then we come to what is really a summary request. It's kind of the implication or the purpose or the end product of the two previous requests. Do you see here at the end of verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? And we don't have time to dwell on this now, but it's essentially Paul's way of describing spiritual maturity, to be all that God wants us to be. It's what Paul is talking about later in the book when he talks about attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's spiritual maturity, fullness of Christ, being what God wants us to be walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And this is true fulfillment. And it comes about as a result of the first two prayers. As the Spirit pours out strength for Christ to dwell in our hearts to a greater degree, and then we walk in a manner more worthy of the calling. And as we come to truly taste and experience more of that love of Christ, to delight in Him, and then we go on further into maturity, We abound in enjoyment of God himself. And this is what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul summarizes his first two great petitions with that. To be filled unto all the fullness of God. Which brings us finally to our third section. The glorious doxology. 
Look at verses 20 to 21. And you will see that Paul finishes this prayer with a glorious doxology. That's just an ascription of praise to God. And it is both a fitting and a necessary way to finish this prayer. Paul's just prayed one of the greatest, grandest prayers that we have written down anywhere. And now he shows us that he's praying to a God who is able to bring that about for his glory. Do you see? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The KJV puts it exceeding abundantly, and I think that's helpful too. Have you ever pondered what that means? Our God can do so far above than we can even imagine. And where is this power working? It's working within us. It's the same power that he's mentioned already in verse 16. It's spiritual power. And so if you were feeling maybe a bit discouraged hearing the great and grand prayers of Paul in the previous section, thinking, this couldn't apply to little me. Remember that this is the God that we are praying to. And he is at work by the Holy Spirit in all Christians. Great Vic, let us ponder anew what the Almighty can do. He can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism sums this up. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful Father. And Paul finishes his prayer to him, God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And here we have the purpose of this prayer. The purpose of everything, in fact, is ultimately for the glory of God. As Jonathan Edwards put it, all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that phrase, the glory of God. To him be glory in the church. How incredible is that? God's glory can be seen even in a small way here. And in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, that is, in history, forever and ever, in eternity. And all God's people said, Amen. As we come to close, will you bear with me as I bring you three brief applications. Firstly, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you cannot say the Son of God loved me and died for me, you must bow your knee before God and acknowledge him as Lord as Paul does here. One day every knee will bow. So I urge you to come now. Come and see the love that Jesus has for you. See his arms outstretched for a cosmic embrace of his love, which is beyond measure that we've been talking about tonight. And you might think, I'm too much of a sinner. God could never forgive me. This 
guy at the front has no idea what I've been through, but God does. And he is able to do far more abundantly than all you ask or imagine. He is both willing and able to save you. If you are a Christian, two levels of application for us now. Firstly, just to consider how we pray. What are your prayers grounded on? What are your priorities in prayer? Allow yourself to be challenged and shaped in your prayer life by Paul's prayer here. I have found this so challenging over the past few weeks in preparing for this. And just two quick practical um, suggestions to help. Why don't you try coming to prayer this week for this reason, like Paul? That is, as you begin praying, allow your prayer to be grounded on an overflow of what you know of God. Maybe try to consider and meditate on a particular attribute of God or on the gospel and then come to prayer for this reason. I find this so helpful just to orientate prayers ultimately to the glory of God as Paul does. And then secondly, let's just consider what percentage of our prayers could be described as seeking first the kingdom of God for eternal weighty things. And I do suspect if you're anything like me, that'll be a real challenge. If you don't know where to start praying for this inner self, for these weightier prayers, try praying this one. Try praying this prayer for yourself, for your family, or equally try any of the other prayers in the Bible that we have covered in this series. It's so helpful to pray the prayers of Scripture. And a final application for Christians. Let me take you back to our drought-ridden yellow grass of our spiritual lives. Do you see in comparison the picture that Paul paints of Christian flourishing? Of his solution to new green growth? How to go on to Christian maturity and increasingly enjoy the love of God in Christ? Is it by working yourself into a frenzy or a new wellness technique or self-improvement book? No. The fertilizer, the rain cloud that we need for our souls is nothing less than a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. This is true revival. And brothers and sisters, we need it and we must pray for this to the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we do come humbly to you now in prayer as we pray according to the riches of your glory that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith that we being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend together what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled unto all the fullness of God. Now to you, the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The band are going to come now and we are going to sing of that love divine, all loves excelling. We'll stand as the band begin.
choose now, we ask that your wonderful grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us all now and evermore.